This particular podcast is about the role of special educational needs, learning difficulties within our society. It's my reflection of how I have seen that particular topic or label changed, especially over the last 40 years, and how I've, in some respects, seen it move forward and how I've seen it move backwards as well. Just to give you a bit of background, um, in my own particular family, uh, we had two cousins, my actual female cousins, who had uh, severe learning difficulties. They were both girls. They were both born and raised in the UK. And both of them had uh, various degrees of disability and learning difficulties, as well as obviously special educational needs. Both girls, uh, although they were born to separate families but were cousins, had um, Down syndrome and both had uh, difficulties with walking. Both of them had the special boots that people had at that time where they were sort of like had a metallic strip to um, provide a sort of comfort as well as strengthening and stabilising both feet for both of those individuals. One of the girls um, was definitely non-verbal. The other girl was deaf, but she was able to use sign language. Now, growing up in a culture, um, my particular culture is Muslim culture, where you don't really see many disabilities. You don't really come across many disabilities because, unfortunately, and I'm not stereotyping for all, I'm not speaking for all Muslim cultures, but I'm saying for some, It's um, a situation where, unfortunately, some children that are born with a learning difficulty or physical um, disability are sort of shunned away from society. In my cousin's cases, we knew they were a part of our community. On some occasions, we would see them out and about with family gatherings and so so on. And um, when I reached particular age of about 11 I personally had been fit and healthy and then discovered if you've seen one one of my other videos discovered my own physical uh, disability from the age of 11 onwards when basically I ended up being in and out of hospital for a long period of time uh, and being unable to walk facing you know being in a wheelchair on and off being on crutches Uh, seeing psychiatrists, having various surgeries done to me, having various other um, aspects analysed in regards to my body and tissue samples. And it was only when I was, um, you know, entering sort of like adulthood, I guess, towards 16 plus, um, well, 18, going towards 18 plus, that they discovered that, you know, what was wrong with me was a physical disability that was caused by the loss of a cartilage in my left hip. During that time, I think those particular experiences and life experiences taught me a lot about special educational needs and taught me a lot about um, the community and how communities perceive you and perceive the people around you and also your perception of self because my cousins that I described and that I've uh, related to, you know, they had a very warm, loving, caring family. And yes, they had their issues. Yes, they had stumbling blocks. 
Um, they had a lot of welfare at those times. You know, I'm talking like early 1980s, uh, where some care was provided because in those days there were special schools made specifically for students that they, you, they could actually go to and get physical support and physical help. I recall in my actual um, physiotherapy that I had, you know, I had to go to a special needs school myself that was for students that were physically disabled, that had severe learning difficulties, okay? And uh, one of the reasons that I was going to this particular pool, um, particular school, should I say, was to use the pool. There was a hydrotherapy pool that was there and part of my physiotherapy treatment was to be able to go in this particular hydrotherapy pool, which happened to be in this school. And um, there was a lady that used to drive me there that was through, you know, the um, authorities that would drive me to my physiotherapy and then drive me back to school. I used to call her my auntie dot. Anyway, um, as I got older and I decided to enter education, you know, I started off teaching in a very, very influential Catholic school. In fact, I taught in two Catholic schools uh, at the time. One was in Huddersfield called All Saints Catholic High School. The other one was St. Joseph's uh, in Bradford, which was very multicultural, but again, another Catholic school. And after a year of teaching in those Catholic schools, I decided that I wanted to move closer to home in Leeds rather than being like Huddersfield or Bradford. And I decided I wanted to teach more locally. And the opportunity that came up at that time was working with children in an area called Beeston. Beeston is very, very well known in Leeds. If you're, if you're not aware of it, it's very, very um, deprived areas. Um, some areas you have very, very low literacy levels. You have huge communities of different races, different nationalities. However, in the times that I'm talking about, you know, early 2000, um, you had a lot of tensions with between races and you had a lot of tensions between people that were also illiterate and non-illiterate. And there was a clear division. In the school that I particularly worked in, um, there was a lot of animosity uh, with the students. I mean, mainly it was a white um, working background, you know, school. You had a huge generation of illiteracy in that community. And what I was um, so shocked by when I first came to teach at this school, I mean, I'd been welcomed in, I'd seen the school, I'd seen the students, but it was only when you really start teaching some of the students that I had my eyes opened and when a 15-year-old child in one of your classes can't hold a pen, can't hold a pencil, can barely spell their own name, let alone enter GCSEs, you know, you, you're sort of woken up to this reality of what is going on. Now, obviously, there's a lot of um, issues. Although you're aware as a teacher, they've got special educational needs and they fall in certain categories for special educational needs at that time. Some of them didn't necessarily receive funding or support in order to have out of classroom or in classroom support and help. This was the situation that majority of these students had, you know, and you're expected to teach a curriculum to these students that doesn't really fit them. You know, sometimes you have to look at the basics, even though you're expected to teach Shakespeare, for example. And the reality is these, can't, these kids can't 
even read their name, you know, and it, it's a hard one. It's a really hard one to have to come and battle across. In the two years that I spent in that particular school, you know, I learned very, very quickly how to differentiate, how to change resources, how to adapt my lessons to fit those particular kids. And one of the very challenging uh, groups that I had was uh, a group of kids called Pathway 4 students. And Pathway 4 students were students that basically had been in and out of prison. In fact, one boy had just been released from a secure, secured uh, you know, position and he'd been thrown back into classroom. He'd been in there for about four years of his life. So from the age of 11 up till 14, 15, 16, he was then thrown back into education. He'd missed, obviously, all the schooling. He had some schooling whilst he was off-site and at this secure location. But obviously, it wasn't permanent. It wasn't a fixture. And he was very quickly labelled as being special educational needs when actually he was actually a very intelligent boy. It's just that, unfortunately, with the situation he was in, he was labelled as being, you know, uh, somebody with learning difficulties, which wasn't quite the case. And in some cases, you do have to investigate cases like that. And on some spectrums, you know, with the, with the children that I've worked with, you'll find that sometimes society labels them very, very quickly. In another school that I worked in, which was my longest period of time, um, this was, again, another inner city high school, another situation where you had quite a lot of uh, deprivation in the inner city area. You had... Uh, huge cases of trauma abuse you had huge cases of you know basically children not being fed not being looked after not being clean there was quite a lot of um, socio-economic issues that were involved with that particular school and the school did very very well to help and try and educate the um, community as well as the children one of my titles I had initially when I was working there was the basic skills coordinator, which was basically working with the head of maths and the head of um, English and various other departments to try and put a basic curriculum in place to sort of go back to primary school levels in a way to help these children attain what they needed to attain. And I did that for a huge number of years. And I ended up also having a special educational needs tutor group, which I looked after for five years, Amongst that tutor group, they were like my daughters. Um, it was an all-girls school, but they were lovely, lovely children, lovely children. There were two particular girls in that I've got in mind that had quite a lot of obstacles in their paths. One particular girl had severe epilepsy, and each time she had an epilepsy, it would trigger and it would, you know, affect part of her brain and part of her learning. She was unable to tell you what belonged to her, what didn't belong to her. Mum did not want her in a special school at that time. Mum wanted her integrated within mainstream and to be included. And that was her right, you know, that was her right to do that. And luckily for her, for this particular girl, she was amongst girls, um, not boys at that time, because it was an all-girls school, but she was able to um, have a small community of people that were always looking out for her, that were not bullying her, that weren't being unkind. In fact, they were they were constantly watching out for her and monitoring her and supporting her and encouraging her. And when she reached, you know, the age of like 15, 16, she even sat and had GCSEs. Now, 
despite the fact that all the obstacles were against her, you know, she may have not achieved a grade. She actually got a grade G, which for that particular child was a huge achievement, a huge achievement um, in itself, you know. And she, like I said, she'd had quite a lot of medical obstacles in her path. She had quite a lot of things in her own life that were affecting everything that she was doing, you know, from doctors changing their medicine to her uh, severe epileptic attacks that were getting more and more frequent to her diet being changed. She faced a lot of obstacles and each day she would come into school laughing and smiling, you know, and she would make people's day. So I will always think very, very fondly of her and her particular needs. And then as you get onto your career and you are with other situations, you know, with other children, you go through different positions in your career. So I was Senko in another particular school. And this means at that time looking after the, you know, rights and privileges of special educational needs and children. And one of the things that I found bizarre about this particular position, I'd moved from an inner city high school into what was um, an all paying school, which no longer was a paying school, but it was basically an ex-grammar school and it had become independent and it had become a free school. And the number of staff that just really just did not get special needs at all, they did not understand differentiation. They would send me children to me that had ingrowing toenails and said, here you go, deal with it. This comes under your umbrella. No, it doesn't actually. That's a medical issue. That's got nothing to do with um, learning needs. And the staff that were in that school, some of them, you know, were, you would think were mature and sensible and were PC enough. But there were times I had huge battles that I had to face as being a Senko. One of them was teaching people not to say words like retarded, thick, stupid, uh, and so on very derogatory terms in regards to special educational needs children. I can recall being ushered to one member of staff's classroom to observe uh, his words, not mine, a thick student that didn't get his history homework. And the thing that really just gobsmacked me at that point was I had done all the data. I had done all the uh, collection of reading ages, spelling ages, I had made staff aware who needed support, who needed extra guidance, who needed extra differentiation. And despite some staff being fully aware of this, they decided to, you know, label these children, inverted commas, thick, unquote, you know. And you're thinking to yourself, what planet is this person on? Because that is someone's child. That is someone's son, you know. And all they're trying to do is access the curriculum and you're not helping them do that. When um, I was discussing this topic with this individual, um, basically the member of staff who was the head of the faculty, actually, which was even more alarming, um, he turned around to me and said, why is this, you know, child of 11 years old not able to spell the word Bayo, you know, the Bayo tapestry? Why can they not understand the word Normandy? Why can't they spell it? And I had to pull this member staff outside and in a polite way, give him a bit of a rollicking um, and say, look, you know, we need a little chat, you and I, because you can't label these students like that. It's un-PC. 
it's also disrespectful it's also not very nice and if you're doing it in front of the peers you know it's also very hurtful this child is not gonna uh, forget the comments that you've made okay you're damaging that person you're damaging that human being and there are politer ways of actually talking about the issues that a person's got also i had to remind this individual that that child has got a reading age of seven you know and as a seven-year-old uh, reading age they're not necessarily going to get the words that you're giving this particular person to learn okay it's part of your curriculum but that person can't access your curriculum. Your whole job is to differentiate. And I faced various challenges like that. This was not just, this was just one minor incident. It continued with the members, members of staff in that school. And it was a challenge after challenge after challenge. And a lot of it started from the senior leadership, which I was part of. But obviously, I was trying my hardest to educate these people and this included the governing staff as well the governing staff a majority of them were barristers and a majority of them happened to be very much um, in their own mind thinking why should I support someone who's special educational needs my child is not special educational needs so why should I support someone else's child that is and this is not really an issue and obviously, in the time that I had been there, I had done my research, as I said, I had found the data, I found the information that said, well, your results are going to suffer, you know, the people in your care are going to suffer if you are not going to put the things in place that they are entitled to, you know, under the Disability Act, under the Equality Act, under all the SEN, you know, reform. In 2014, there was a new SEN code of practice in England um, which some people were just choosing not to follow. One of the new implications for that meant that instead of having students labelled, you know, uh, under certain categories, for example, um, they may have been receiving certain care from the state government, in England, I mean, um, which was a statement. And a statement of needs was something that a parent and a child had to fight really hard for, okay? And some schools... Um, when the new change happened in 2014, the schools had to fund, you know, the teaching assistants out of their own budget, out of their own pocket. And as you can imagine, a lot of schools did not want to do that. We were already facing quite a lot of cuts, left, right, centre, left, right, centre. One particular case I can remember is coming across a young boy, uh, bless him, who had, you know, primordial dwarfism. And I read his case file, I read his information, I read everything that had been passed from um, the school board, you know, who were putting him in our school. And um, I had to try and work out whether we could actually provide him the care that he needed. Now, like I said at the time, the huge uh, counter effect of state schools being closed, you know, uh, special educational needs places being closed, the care and services where these children would normally go to, the centres, the provision that's out there closed, and more and more of it was be being called inclusion. So basically putting them in, in mainstream. And I'm talking severe cases of physical handicap, uh, physical disability, uh, physical uh, or sensory issues. You know, the list goes on. And there were thousands of cases where 
kids could not go to the places they wanted to where the care previously was given to them because those places were being closed by the government, okay? And, you know, those children needed somewhere to go. Now, in my particular case, when I came across this young boy, you know, and I got to know his family, obviously I was concerned about the risk assessments and, you know, as a senior leadership person in school, you're trying to figure out where you can put this individual in, what are the hazards, what are the things I'm going to have to change for this young young man to be able to access school before we've even looked at education, you know, what can we, what can we do? Because obviously he had learning difficulties, severe learning difficulties, where he was, although he was 11 years old, he was still learning as if he was in, you know, key stage one. And for a senior member of staff to try and differentiate to that level, some of them would find that extremely hard, even though it was a 14-18 school. And some staff would struggle on a big scale trying to differentiate and sort that out. The biggest challenge we faced with this particular young man was the fact that he was still in nappies, he was still in diapers. And, you know, um, the uproar that that caused, because obviously quite a lot of the school building had to be transformed and changed, for that young man when eventually he won the case to stay in the school. Some members of staff didn't understand that, you know, special educational needs was changing. And, um, you know, the places where some of these children used to go have closed down. They didn't understand why, you know, why is my school being targeted? Why is my school being like this? Well, you're part of, you're part of the network now, you know, and a child and a parent can choose where they want to send their child if that's what they want and the government and the council will support them but what is happening more and more is that I'm seeing you know as I've moved abroad and I've worked in different places as well is I can see some of those um, sort of stereotypes and the sort of prejudgment has been made on individuals with learning difficulties you know sometimes people are putting them into brackets of, oh, well, it's because English is not your first language. No, that's not necessarily this, the case. They've got a learning difficulty. Sometimes it's a cultural uh, aspect where the parent doesn't want to accept that their child has got a learning difficulty. And I think that is an important topic because you don't necessarily have to be any specific nationality, any specific religion, any specific race. Each person deals with special educational needs in their own way. Like I said, my personal experience, you know, if if I hadn't had my hip replacement in the age of like, you know, eight, um, 20 or so, I, or 21, I think it was, you know, I wouldn't have been doing half the stuff that I'm doing now. Even though even now I'm seen as a, you know, physically able-bodied person, which I am to, to various degrees, I still have a lot of physical restrictions that I'm unable to do. And I get about my day and I cope with my day as do others, you know, with the best that I best way that I can. But not everybody is in that particular situation where they're able to voice their concerns and they're able to get the help and the care that they need. Unfortunately, in a lot of cultures it's very shunned, you know, um having physical uh, a disability or a learning disability the parents um, are struggling to accept that my child has got this particular situation and they're struggling to even bond with that child or even accept that child as theirs and this is the harsh reality of what is going on at the moment 
Um, some individuals are struggling to even get their child diagnosed, you know, and this is also another reality because even though they're fully aware that their child is not reaching certain milestones or perhaps they're communicating in a different way or uh, physically doing something in a different way to other toddlers, I guess, of the similar age group, you know, the parent can clearly see something is not quite right, okay? And they're trying to get them that help. And again, what they're facing is that quite a lot of the resources and the services that they rely on just to even get them recognised is difficult. Um, I came across this myself with, uh, you know, with one of the children I, I that was under my care. And um, he was approaching the age of 15 and mum had been passionately trying extremely hard to get him the support and the care and the um, the guidance he needed to be, you know, you could clearly see that he was on the autistic spectrum. There was no denying that. But it was taking tests after tests and doctor appointment after doctor appointment to get a full, you know, a full diagnosis for this young man before he was even given uh, the due care and the process that he needed. One of the good things, I guess, that's come out of the new EHCP rule, which is into, you know, the SEN code of practice, the EHCP is educational healthcare plans. And basically it means that in from 2014 onwards, um, anybody that was born, so from zero to 25, they would then receive state funding, you know, um, in order to help and support their learning or physical disability, whatever category it would fall under. And I guess in a way that's really good because a lot of students I had, you know, that were leaving school at sixth form, for example, would be going to university and they would be struggling. You know, quite a lot of them had teaching assistants, they had reading aids, they had certain texts visualised in a better way. They would have um, extra exam time, for example. And these are things that they would rely on because it's part of their normal method of working. And, you know, you've got them independent. You've got them at the point where you want them to be able to go to university or to go on into workforce or whatever. So you need them to be able to function outside of your safety net, which was school. So in a way, it's a great thing to see this being put into plan, you know, for the up to age 25. But that's in England. It's not necessarily going to be the same in America or in Europe or in another country elsewhere. Like I said, each country is dealing with this topic on a larger scale. Some are, you know, pushing it under the carpet. Some are proud and are trying to put things in place. But each school, I guess, or each place or each country is dealing with it whichever way they can. Recently, what's been really heartwarming is seeing a country that I travel to quite regularly um, in the last couple of days introduce disabled uh, ramps and disabled bays for parking and disabled signs as well for parking. I mean, it's 2020, but it's taken that particular country only to be able to address those particular individuals now and to put those particular steps in place to provide some sort of access for you know people in wheelchairs it shows me that some countries are willing to move and strive forward to make changes where there needs to be changes and some countries obviously due to financial situations are unable to do that um, at a rapid pace um, my heart goes out to the countries that are trying. It's really revolutionary and it's inspiring to see 
that they're willing to take uh, small steps, but small steps in some regards helps people to move forward and it helps those individuals be recognised within the community as well. So it's a great thing that that is happening. My heart also goes out to lots of parents that are in these predicaments. You know, nowadays, because of 2020, there is that many different um, ailments coming out, different medical conditions that are coming out, lots of physical characteristics. Technology obviously has changed massively as well. Uh, medical field has in ch changed dramatically as well. And, you know, now you'll probably find that there are far more situations, far more uh, diagnosis being made, far more situations that include um, the SEN umbrella. It's not just the stereotypical cases, perhaps that you would have had in the 1960s, 1950s, 1970s, 80s, 90s, and so on. So in 2020, you know, those, um, that SEND, because now the D has been added for the disability, has been added on to that umbrella, it's expanding. And hopefully, you know, as we go on into the future and we see um, SEN needs hopefully recognised and um, people, you know, in certain cultures being more respectful, being more accepting and being more understanding, hopefully we can strive forward for change and hopefully we can see an improvement with how society in general accepts quite a lot of these individuals because they are part of our community. That's my wish. Um, it's something I passionately am fighting for with some of my students that I come across. Obviously, I have done over the last 20 years. Like I said, for me, physically, I fall under that umbrella um, and I may end up falling back into that umbrella again one day if I end up in a wheelchair again. But for now, you know, um, it's just a matter of embracing what we have in our world and looking forward and hoping that in the future, a lot of the struggles that people have had in the past, you know, will be something that we don't necessarily think of and we have equality and we have, you know, equal access to all. That's my hope to the future. Thank you for listening.